Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 8? We've been studying the book of Joshua here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, and uh, Joshua chapters 7 and 8 are very much connected. In chapter 7, we saw God give to Israel a tremendous victory over Jericho, the strongest stronghold of the enemy. But while they were celebrating their victory, they didn't realize that the seeds of their coming defeat had already been sown. What do I mean? One man, Achan, whose name means trouble, did the very thing God had forbidden. God said, the first fruits of conquest of Canaan, Jericho, the spoil belongs to me. Bring it into my treasury. After that, you can take the spoil of every other city you conquer, but not the spoil of Jericho. If you take it, you corrupt it, it becomes an accursed thing to the whole nation. Achan did that secretly, hid the stuff in his tent, saw a few things he liked of the spoil of Jericho, took him, hid him in his tent. His family knew what he had done. And then, of course, they went on to the Battle of Ai, the next conquest of the land of Canaan, small town, about 12,000 people total, maybe 3,000 fighting men. Israel got a little overconfident. We don't need the whole army. We'll just go and just uh, give us a couple thousand guys. We'll take care of it. Well, they didn't take care of it. They wound up running for their lives as the men of Ai rose up, killed 36 Jewish soldiers. This absolutely stunned and shocked Joshua. It just stunned him, shocked him completely, Joshua. He didn't go with them to battle. But when word came back what had happened, he fell on his face before God, and he basically accused God of wrongdoing and not keeping his word to give them total victory. God said, what are you doing, laying in there on your face? Get up off the dirt. I haven't let Israel down. I haven't been unfaithful. Israel has sinned and has taken some of the accursed things I have forbidden and has taken them and hid them in their tent, and therefore you cannot stand against your enemies until the accursed thing has been removed from your midst. Well, as we already studied, the next day they, they get the whole nation together, cast lots, and eventually the lot fell on Achan. Joshua admonished him to confess what he had done. He did. They went to his tent, found the spoil, took him and his family, and they had to stone them to death. After the evil was removed from the nation, they went up against Ai once again. This time, not overconfident at all, took the whole army, and God gave them a tremendous victory. Now, they're back on track, guys. They're back on track. Now they've, they have defeated Ai. And you have to understand, you can look at your Bible maps this week. Jericho stood uh, on the plains as you entered the Promised Land. From there, there was a road that led up into the high country. That's where Ai was. On the road between the main route that ran along the mountain trail from north to south, Ai stood on that intersection between north and south. Israel needed to defeat Ai to basically cut off the north from the south, thus dividing the enemy. And then they turned southward and began to take on the, the nations to the south and then they went up against the north, but they cut the enemy in half. Very strategic move that God led them to do. But now they've taken Ai, and they're on the move again. Logic would say, let's not stop, let's keep going. The enemy is now, you know, we've got them on the run again. They're scared. They, they were emboldened a little bit when, we, when Ai defeated us initially, but now... We're back on track. Let's go for it. Let's not give the enemy time to regroup. Let's go and take it. Let's begin to take on the next stronghold right away. Now, that would be human logic. But see, God doesn't always operate according to our human logic. This is what I've discovered over the years. And so here again we see God 
teaching his people and us a principle. And that is that he who believes shall not make haste. God is never in a hurry when it comes to his purposes for our lives. Why? Well, he's God. He's in complete control of every situation, so there's no need to hurry or no need to worry. He's in complete control. And so instead of continuing to lead his people in their military campaign against the next enemy stronghold, the Lord took them on a little detour, about 25 miles to the north, a few miles to the west, to a valley situated between two mountains, the Valley of Shechem, which is said to be one of the most beautiful places in all of Israel. The Valley of Shechem is two miles wide. On one side stood Mount Ebal, rugged, rocky, barren. On the other side of the valley stood Mount Gerizim, beautiful and wooded. Each mountain rose about a thousand feet above the valley floor. The valley of Shechem is often green and beautiful. And at one place where the mountains kind of come close together, it forms a natural amphitheater. In fact, F.B. Meyer describes it as, and I quote, a place where the mountains are hollowed out and the limestone stratum is broken into a succession of ledges so as to present the appearance of a series of regular benches. It is a natural amphitheater capable of containing a vast audience of people, end quote. Now, the remarkable thing about this area is its acoustical properties. I've never been there, even though I've been to Israel six times. You can't really go to the Valley of Shechem anymore. It's too dangerous. So the guides keep you away from there. But the others who have been there have proven that this area has some remarkable acoustical properties. They tell me that one person can stand on Mount Ebal and another person on Mount Gerizim, two miles apart, and they can carry on a conversation with each other without barely raising their voices. And the same thing is true for what's being said in the valley. The way the sound bounces off the rock formations or whatever it might be, it just naturally amplifies people's voices. And it was this natural amphitheater that was the destination for the people of God. You see, God was taking a little time out, quote-unquote, from their conquest of the land to bring them to this very important location to teach them, or I should say to remind them, of some very important principles. See, after having suffered that humiliating defeat at Ai, and it was probably pronounced I. So people that are listening to this, uh, you know, going to be listening to this on CD or this series, listening already, they're probably thinking, no, it's not AI, it's I. But, you know, I don't want to sound like a pirate every time I say I, so I'm just going to say AI, okay? It might be technically incorrect, but that's what I'm going with, all right? Anyways, after suffering that humiliating setback at AI, because of the sin and disobedience of one man, Achan, of course, we said, which after the sin was removed from their midst, blessing and victory returned to the nation. Well, while that whole thing was still fresh in their minds, I think that God thought it was the best time to take them on a little detour. Again, while that whole thing, the defeat that resulted from disobedience and the victory that was restored because of obedience, it was a great time for God to take them on this little detour, uh, on a little pilgrimage to a place this place where God would remind them once again of his law and reinforce in their thinking how that obedience would always lead to blessing and disobedience would always lead to defeat and destruction. And by the way, this was not the first time, nor would it be the last time, that something important happened in this valley. 
It was in this very valley about six centuries earlier that God had first promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan, him and his descendants. And it would be many centuries later that Jesus Christ himself would sit by Jacob's well in this very place and talk to a Samaritan woman about her sin and about her need for living water, which was, of course, faith in Christ for salvation. But I'm convinced that what was about to take place right here in Joshua was going to be the most dramatic and soul-stirring event of them all. Now, listen, we can approach this section in different ways. Many of the commentators see in verses 30 to 35 a reference to Jesus and the new covenant uh, symbolically presented. We could look at it that way, and certainly any study of the Lord Jesus Christ is fruitful. But I just feel that God wanted us to look at this passage on more of a practical rather than a deeply doctrinal level. So in this passage, verses 30 to 35, I want you to see three things, which the people of God, not only back then but today, of course, need to be constantly reminded of in our relationship with God, lest we slowly begin to drift off into error and defeat and irrelevance. The three things have to do with, first of all, our worship of God, secondly, our work for God, and finally, our walk with God. First of all, our worship of God, in verses 30 and 31, we read, Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of, of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the animal sacrifices were often a form of worship to God. Now, I know that many of them did deal with sin, and thus we read about the sin offerings in the book of Leviticus. But not all of the sacrifices related to sin. And we see two here that speak of other things. We see the peace offering, and we see the burnt offering. The peace offering spoke of fellowship with God, and the burnt offering spoke of consecration to God. Both of these were forms of worship that really didn't have anything to do with sin, but simply had to do with communion and, as I said, consecration. Of course, today, we no longer offer animal sacrifices in worship to God. But Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we offer now ourselves as living sacrifices. And he means the sum total of our whole lives, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And as I pointed out before, the Greek could be translated, we offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices, which constitute our spiritual act of worship. The Greek could be translated that way. But the thing I want you to see in this was that God gave them very specific instructions on how the altar, upon which these animal sacrifices were to be offered, how this altar was to be built. Again in verse 31 of chapter 8, As Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, this reference to what was already written in the book of the law of Moses is a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. This was something God had commanded Moses, and he wrote it down in the law. The altar 
any altar that they were to make was actually an object that was used in the worship of God, right? You can offer an animal to the Lord, a peace offering, burnt offering, or whatever it might be. That altar became an implement, an object that was then used for that purpose. It became part of the worship of God. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 20, God gave the initial instructions for how, listen, He wanted altars constructed that were going to be used in Israel's worship of God. Listen to what He said in Exodus 20, verses 24 and 5. God said, Make it an altar of earth, dirt, you shall make for me. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. You see, God wanted these altars to be very simple, made out of earth or just common dirt or plain field stones, which, by the way, both were a creation of God. Dirt, stones, those were both made by the hand of God. God says, you want to build an altar to me? Use dirt or regular field stone. Not hewn stones. Don't cut them. Don't carve them. Don't engrave them in any way. Leave them alone. Just pile them up. Put the sacrifice on there. That's what I want you to do. Because he said, if you do use a tool to carve or cut them in any way, you profane it. And you make the altar unusable and anything offered on it unacceptable to me, God said. Now you read that and you wonder, why is the Lord being so definitive about this? I mean, what's wrong with trying to beautify something used in the worship of God? Well, I'll tell you why. God didn't want the altar to become so ornate that it would draw attention away from him. See, God never wants anything used in the worship of God to become an object of worship itself. And that's why he wants to keep things simple. Because he knows how prone man is to beautify and decorate objects used in the worship of God so that they actually begin to draw away attention and glory from God himself. We've all seen examples of this, either in picture or in person, of these great cathedrals that have been built around the world to worship God, right? Consisting of incredibly beautiful architecture, expensive stained glass windows, artwork painted on ceilings and walls, along with beautifully carved statues everywhere. And what happens when you walk into one of these cathedrals? Well, your attention is immediately drawn to all the man-made beauty and away from the one these things were actually made to worship. And so many of these old cathedrals, and I'm thinking of those in Europe especially, if you've ever seen them or been inside of any of them, they are massive structures. But if you were to go to one of those cathedrals on a Sunday morning, even though at one time they held a thousand or more people, there's 15 or 20 people sitting in the pews. They're practically empty because they're dead. And yet you still have a few people that refuse to leave the church. Why? Because they really love the building. They love the building. It has become an object of worship. This is the very thing that God was wanting to prevent his people from doing back in Joshua's day, and I believe still to this day. Look, 
and this may anger some people, but let me just be honest, okay? Before I became a Christian, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is high church. What does that mean? Liturgical. It's very liturgical. And uh, most of the Catholic churches that I've been in and some of the cathedrals like, well, downtown and, uh, and other places around the country uh, are very ornate, very beautiful. And um, I know that before I got saved, um, boy, you felt like you were in God's presence in one of those places, didn't you? Yet I don't feel like I'm in God's presence anymore when I go to one of those churches. Why? Because once I got saved, the Lord God moved inside of my heart. I became the temple of the living God, just like you did when you gave your heart to Christ. See, before I got saved, before the Spirit of God was in my heart, I had to go to a place that made me feel like I was in the presence of God because God wasn't in me, right? And that's what the idea is with high church. High church is usually the dead church. Sorry, not that everybody who goes to high church is dead spiritually. But for the most part, let's be honest. Those churches resemble more of mortuaries than sanctuaries. And there's just a deadness in these places. So what do you do? If God's not in you and the Spirit of God is not in that place, you've got to make yourself feel like you're in the presence of God. That's why you have to have the beautiful ornate statues and carvings and stained glass windows and on the ceilings you paint angels and everything else. Because when you walk into a place like that, it makes you feel like you're in the presence of God. But once you get saved, you don't need to feel like you're in the presence of God. God is in you. So we can meet in a place like this. Pretty simple, right? And a lot of people that have, been, that have grown up in high church, they walk in here and go, what is this? What is this? This isn't a church. You guys are playing games here. Look, we're not playing games. But we don't need a building ornate and, and so on to worship God. Because we know that everywhere we go, we're the temple of the living God. We worship Him wherever we go. But there's a danger, isn't there? There's a danger in taking objects that were created to facilitate the worship of God and eventually making them the focus where they receive the attention more than God himself. And that's what God that's why God forbid them from making ornate altars. He wanted their attention and of course ours to be drawn to him in worship, not to the works of men's hands. And again, just to say it again, Whenever man gets his hands on something that's to be used in the worship of God, what does he want to do with it? He wants to carve it. He wants to paint it. He wants to beautify it, decorate it. He wants to just go crazy with it. And in the process, I think the glory and attention are drawn away from God to that thing. You know, this principle even applies to us, how God wants to keep it simple, even when it comes to us, you know, in our work for him. You remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. He said, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You see, Paul was saying God didn't want the vessel taking glory and attention away from the treasure within. What is the vessel? The earthen vessel is us as believers. We were made out of the dust of the earth, right? We're dirt, basically. (laughs) We, We really have been made out of the dirt of the earth. And so God takes us, who are just earthen vessels, and sticks inside of us a great treasure. What is it? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, of course, living in us through the power of the Spirit, but also the truth of God, which is the gospel. And now he tells us to go out into all the world and share it, right? To evangelize, correct? But he doesn't want the the vessel to take away from the glory within. We are not the issue. God doesn't want the, the vessel, all right, 
to take away from the glory of the treasure within. It's not the packaging, folks, that matters. It's what's inside. Now, this is something that uh, uh, the advertising industry has come to understand. If they can beautify the packaging to a point, it doesn't matter what they stick inside of it, we're going to buy it. This is especially true with cosmetics, all right? I mean, you see the elaborate packaging on some of these cosmetics, and, you know, you, you think, wow, you know, and, and, and you're drawn to it. Not me, of course, but you're drawn to it, you girls. It doesn't matter if the product inside is inferior in some way. I think some of these things, they spend more on the packaging than they do on what's inside. But that's the world, isn't it? That's the world's mentality. And God's just the opposite. God says, I'm going to put a treasure in you. When you accept my son, he's going to live inside of you. In fact, we're all going to move in, the whole trinity, all right? And we're going to come with our truth, the truth that we want you to give to a lost world. We want you to go out into all the world, Jesus said, and to preach the good news to everybody. So, you know, that gets into the second thing we want to talk about. We've looked at our worship of God. Secondly, our work for God. Of course, our work for God flows out of our worship of God. Because service is nothing more than a fruit, really, of our relationship with the Lord. That's really what it is. In fact, somebody has said, no man or woman can be a worker for God who is not first a worshiper of God. And listen to me. The same principle that God established for worship applies to the work of God. He wants to keep it simple and humble. I'm talking about his servants now. God wants his servants' lives and ministries for him to be as simple as and as understated as the altars he mentions here in Joshua chapter 8. Why is this so important? Well, because today we're seeing a glaring example of what not to do on TV, aren't we? You turn on the TV, Christian television, and what do you see? You see preachers, you see pastors, they're dressed, you know, flashy, acting showy, strutting up and down the stage, you know, preaching with such kind of flamboyancy and theatrics that they're drawing attention completely away from God and putting it onto themselves, aren't they? If you haven't watched Christian television in a while, check it out. Some of these characters, I mean, you know, it's like they're going through these gyrations on stage and all these theatrics, and honestly, it's, a, it's quite a performance. But I don't see God there. It's not like I want to be invisible so you just see the Lord. No, it's look at me, all right? All the attention is drawn to the instrument. What does this do? I think that it causes many who follow these people's ministries, not all, but many, to begin to elevate them in their minds to a place of worship. I really do. I think that um, this has demonstrated itself in the rise and I think the curse of Christian celebrityism that we see in our country. You know, as uh, ministers, the word minister is a Greek word that means servant. We're supposed to be servants. Not celebrities. Some of these characters, they're total celebrities. I mean, they're like rock stars when they go places. They have to have the finest accommodations. They won't come and speak at a conference unless you pay them a hefty honorarium up front to tell you what they require. Forget about freely you have received, freely give, you know. And uh, they demand to be put up in a five-star hotel. And, and you know, it's, it's just crazy, some of these guys. And that's why the Lord doesn't choose many super gifted and charismatic people. And I'm not saying there's not a lot of charismatic people on TV. I'm not so sure that God is using them. That's what I want to say about that. But that's why the Lord doesn't choose many super gifted or charismatic people to use in his work. It's because he knows how prone we are to exalt the instrument instead of the one that is using the instrument. Case in point, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you turn there. I mean, Paul talked about this, didn't he? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
We'll just read verses 26 to 29, where Paul said, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. He didn't say not any. He said not many. Okay, There are some very talented, brilliant, gifted folks in the church. No doubt about that. But he says not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not, nobody's, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. This is the general principle by which God uses to choose people to do his work. He chooses the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want the vessel taken away from the glory of the one who is using the vessel or the instrument. Very simple. See, this is why God chooses simple people to do most of his work through. He chooses the weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Because when he works through these individuals, he receives all the glory. And God does not want to share his glory with another. We are simply instruments in God's mighty hand. I mean, we deserve nothing. The fact that he even lets us serve him is a miracle. He doesn't need us, but he lets us get involved. But he doesn't want us to come between himself and those that we're ministering to. God help that man or woman who gets in the way between God and those he is trying to reach by making people think that they are absolutely essential in the whole process. If it wasn't for me, you guys couldn't get saved, you know. You need this ministry. No, we don't need any ministry. We just need the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit will use ordinary people, even those people that the world has written off as being completely worthless of anything useful. God takes and reaches down and redeems them and makes some new creations and sends them out to do his work. And the world is baffled that ex-cons or ex-drug dealers or all kinds of different people could be used in the ministry. They don't get that. How could that be? Because God is taking those that are base, rejected, foolish, weak, nobodies, so that the, the vessel does not take away from the treasure within. Very important point. It's a common danger in the work and worship of God, again, that the objects used by God, whether animate or inanimate, whether people or things, instead of facilitating the worship of God, have a tendency to become objects of worship instead of God. Let me give you another example of this. You don't have to turn there, but in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, is God is leading Israel through the wilderness. At one point, it says they became impatient and discouraged. Things weren't happening quick enough. So they began to cry out against Moses and against the Lord himself. They began to murmur and complain, and God sent fiery serpents into the camp of Israel that began to bite the people, and they began to die. And finally, the people cried out to Moses, to pray for them that they were had sinned against the Lord, were sorry, please ask the Lord to stop, you know, and to spare us. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord said, Look, make a brass serpent and place it on a pole, erect it in the midst of the camp of Israel, and anyone who was bitten by one of these fiery serpents, if they will look to the brass serpent on the pole, by faith was the idea, they would be healed. Well, of course, all that looked forward to Jesus Christ. And we don't have to guess that. Jesus told us that in John 3. He said, For as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes on me would not perish but have everlasting life. See, we've all been bitten by the serpent, Satan and sin, right? 
And the only thing that can heal us is Jesus Christ who became sin. That's why the serpent on the pole. He became sin, lifted up on the cross, that if we will look to him by faith, we will be forgiven of our sins and healed and given eternal life. It's a beautiful symbol, isn't it? Now, the children of Israel kept that brass serpent, all right? And centuries later, when King Hezekiah took the throne of Judah, he noticed that the people were now worshiping this brass serpent. This thing that was used in the service of God to teach Israel a lesson and to, and to really speak of Messiah's coming and all. Uh, centuries later, the people now were worshiping the object. And Hezekiah took the thing, broke it in pieces, and he cried, Nehushtan, which means a thing of brass. It's not a god. It's a thing of brass. What are you doing? And yet I'm wondering, if Jesus walked into so many churches today in our country, if he would say, look, it's not a god. It's a thing of brass or wood or stone. or It's a church building. It's, it's not to be worshipped. It's something that is used for the worship of God. How sad when people allow their priorities and the focus to be shifted away from God himself to things. And I, I personally believe this is also indicative of where a person is with the Lord. I think that when a person has either wandered away from God or has never really known Jesus Christ personally, I think that they're instinctively drawn to religious objects. Because, again, it makes them feel like they're somehow connecting with God. But when Jesus lives in your heart through his Holy Spirit, you don't need objects. I mean, they have sold more splinters of Christ's cross. You could, you could recreate a whole, a whole forest, I mean, of the splinters that were sold, that were you know, slivers of the cross of Christ. And, you know, who buys that stuff? I mean, you know, who doesn't know that's a scam? But people do. They buy it all the time. I mean, some of the stuff that's hawked in the name of Jesus, I mean, like, who buys this stuff? And why would you buy this stuff? I mean, it's because they, need to, they, they feel a need to connect with God. Hey, connect with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. And he will come, he'll connect with him in a way you've never dreamed of. You'll become one with him. But the third thing I want you to see here, I think the third thing that God wants to remind us of through this uh, story, is he wants to teach us that we're going to stay close to him where his blessings and victory remain upon us, then we have to have a good, strong walk with the Lord. We've looked at our worship of God, our work for God, finally our walk with God. When it comes to our walk with God, nothing is more essential than the word of God. And listen, continued obedience to all that God has said in his word. Let me direct your attention again to Joshua 8, verse 32, where we read, And there, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote, this is Joshua now wrote, on the stones, a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written, that all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. Now, this gets back into something that God had commanded through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Turn there quickly. We're not going to read the whole deal. I want to just give you a flavor, though. 
Because again, they are obeying something that God had said earlier they were to do once they entered the land. At one point, and we're reading about that very thing right now in Joshua 8, but at one point, half the tribes were to stand in front of Mount Ebal, the other half in front of Mount Gerizim, and you were to have this, this altar, along with the Ark of the Covenant, in front of Mount Ebal, and they were, first of all, it says in verse 11, And Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when they have crossed over the Jordan. And he gives the names of those tribes. And then the others who will stand in front of Mount Ebal. Verse 14, And the Levites shall speak with a loud voice and say to all the men of Israel, Cursed is the one who makes a carved or molded image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of, of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen, which is, means truly, or we would say right on. Verse 16, Cursed is the one who treats his father or mother with contempt, and all the people shall say, Amen. And then in chapter 28, verses 1 through 7, you read the blessings for obedience. And I kind of think that they were staggering this back and forth. I think that first a pronouncement of curse upon disobedience was spoken, and the people said amen. Then by Mount Gerizim, they heard the pronouncement of blessings upon obedience, and it went back and forth until they had gone through all of Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Then we read, after they had finished doing uh, as God commanded, pronouncing the cursings upon disobedience and the blessings upon obedience, it says here in verses 34 and 5 of Joshua 8, And afterward he, Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings according to all that, that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Now, you have to get this in your mind's eye, because this is kind of, I think, a dramatic scene, all right? Here you got half the nation standing in front of Mount Ebal, which is rocky, barren, right, ugly, just a big rock sticking up out of the ground, basically. Then you got half the nation standing in front of Mount Gerizim, lush, beautiful, wooded, green, etc. From Mount Gerizim, they're pronouncing all the blessings for obedience. Then from Mount Ebal... They're pronouncing all the curses upon disobedience. And you see the picture in your mind, right? I mean, you see this one mountain, beautiful, lush, wooded, green, gorgeous. All the blessings of God. It's like this is what's going to, you know, this is the life you'll have, all right? Over here, disobedience, look at that ugly thing. That's going to be your life if you don't obey God. It's kind of like the Lord saying, okay, where do you want to hang out, man? Where do you want to live? You want to live in Mount Evil? You want to live in Mount Gerizim? It's up to you. Are you going to obey me? I will bless you. If you seek to disobey me and live in rebellion, here's the consequence. Your life is going to be a mess. Rocky, barren, ugly, unfruitful, depressing. It's a depressing. You wouldn't want to go camping on Mount Ebal. All right? Then it says in verses 34 and 5, And afterward he, Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings. Okay? So initially... They read out of what we call Deuteronomy 27, verses 11 through the end of the chapter, and then uh, chapter 28, verses 1 through 7, and they went back and forth as God had commanded. Now, when they were done doing that, then Joshua read the entire law of God, all the words of the law, 
the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Now, I want you to try to picture this in your mind's eye, because I think this was a rather dramatic and even poignant experience for them. I mean, they had just seen this in actual practice. They had just seen the reality of these principles worked out in their everyday practical lives. How that, when they had disobeyed God, defeat, humiliation had come to them. When they repented and they removed the sin from their midst and got back to obeying God, then blessing and victory and so on. There's no better time to then reinforce in people's thinking, look, you've just experienced the very thing God has said. Now, let's talk about what God has said one more time. So they reminded themselves of this. And so after they had gotten done, you know, with the blessings and the cursings back and forth from Mount Ebal and Gerizim, then Joshua stood in the valley by the Ark of the Covenant, and he read all five books that Moses, excuse me, that God had given to Moses. He did not fail to declare to them, as Paul the Apostle would later say, the whole counsel of God, right? Man does not live by bread alone, Jesus said, but by how many words that proceed out of the mouth of God? Every. Every word. And again, what a dramatic scene this must have been. As the whole nation had gathered there to hear about the blessings if we obey God. And looking at Mount Gerizim, beautiful mount, trees, lush and green. And then the curses for disobedience, looking at barren, rugged, rocky, ugly Mount Ebal. Where do you want to live? Say, Where do you want to live? Where do you want to hang out? But I want you to understand as we bring it so close. When the people came together to worship God, nothing ornate distracted them, and their attention was drawn to God alone as he expressed himself through his word. In fact, all the words that God had spoken that were written down in the law, nothing was left out. And folks, I I see in this that this is to be the ministry. This and this alone is to be the ministry of the church to equip the Christian to walk with God and to do the work of God by teaching them faithfully the word of God, the whole counsel of God. Not just picking and choosing your favorite topics as a pastor. I'm talking about going through it verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, so that nothing is left out. We don't preach our little hobby horse messages here so that my same 10 or 15 topics, my favorite topics, we preach all the time. No. We just go right to the Bible, verse by verse. That's beautiful because when you come to a place that steps on people's toes, you know, and people come up to you and go, you know, maybe it was their first week and they thought you tailored the message to get them. Look, I didn't tailor it to do anything. You just, we're just going verse by verse. If you happen to come the week we were talking about your problem, you've got to talk, take it up with the Lord. I mean, you know, I didn't single, I don't even know you. How could I single you out? But I think part of that responsibility is we teach the whole word of God. We will, of necessity then, tell them, look, this is the life that you're going to have if you obey God. And these are the consequences that are going to come upon you if you live in rebellion against God. You see, I think one of the things that God wanted to drive home to the nation by going on this little detour to this place, listen, was that nobody violates the law of God with impunity. 
Nobody violates God's law without paying the consequences. You don't break God's law. God's law breaks you. And that's the point. You will reap what you sow. It's an immutable law of God. You will reap and I will reap what we sow. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday the consequences for our disobedience are going to catch up to us. We studied this last Wednesday night in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, you will reap what you sow. It's the law of the sower. And again, a lot of people make the mistake and think, well, you know, nothing bad has happened to me so far. All right? I'm still being blessed. My life is great. I've got a good job. I've got a nice, healthy family. Hey, nothing bad is happening to me. You Christians keep talking about consequences coming for sin. Well, I don't see any. Therefore, what I'm doing must not be wrong. Well, again, just because you don't reap the consequences immediately doesn't mean they're not coming. And before they come, a wise person will repent and get right with God. Because if you don't, eventually a life of sin is going to catch up to you. Eventually, the lung cancer is going to show up. Eventually, the cirrhosis of the liver is going to show up or the AIDS. Eventually, your life is going to come crashing down at some point in the future because you cannot sin with impunity. What you sow, you're going to reap. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption, right? And we talked about Ernest Hemingway on Wednesday night. Ernest Hemingway used to put down Christians. He used to mock Christians because he lived a very profligate life, a very sinful life. He was a womanizer. He was a drinker. He was just a, a, a reprobate. Talented guy, but a reprobate. And back then, Christians would uh, warn him of how, you know, if he kept on going the way he was going, he was going to reap some real negative consequences. He would laugh at them. He would laugh at Christians. And he would say, look, you Christians are talking about consequences for living in sin. I don't even believe in sin. I live the way I want to live. And look, nothing bad's happening to me. I'm rich. I'm successful. So you guys are all out to lunch. Look, you don't reap what you sow immediately. Sometimes it takes time. During that time, God is warning you to repent. But if you don't, you're going to reap what you have sown. For Hemingway, it was ten years later. His whole world came crashing down emotionally. And he took his favorite shotgun, put it in his mouth, and pulled the trigger. I think God is trying to teach Israel and all of us by taking them to Mount Ebal and Gerizim right after this defeat and then victory at Ai. I think what God was trying to say is, look, put it in our way we would say, we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. I love you. I want to bless your life. I don't want to use painful circumstances to get you to repent and get right with me. And I certainly don't want to take you off this earth because you refuse to repent if you're one of my children, take you home prematurely. And to the unbeliever, God is saying, and I love you too. That's why I sent my son to die for you. But if you refuse to repent, my judgment will someday fall. But we can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can get your life right with me now and live in obedience, and I'm going to bless you. I'm not saying your life is going to always be problem-free, but God will be with you and he will bless you. Or we can do it the hard way. I will get glory from your life one way or another. I would much rather get it by you giving it voluntarily and living for me. But if not, I will hold your life up to others with a big circle and a line through it. Say, look at this. You don't want to live like this guy or this gal who refused to obey me. And now look at the life, look at the consequences they're reaping. So what do you do? What do you do if you've been living a life of sin? 
Well, I love the way this story, and you may not see this, and we'll finish with this. God wanted to communicate to this, uh, through this story, one other important thing. That if you disobey what he has said in his word, forgiveness is available. How do we know that? Where was the altar built in verse 30? Where did they build it? In front of which mount? Mount Ebal. Mount Ebal was the mount that represented disobedience and curses. And I think that God is saying, look, the altar was built by Mount Ebal because the altar was for sinners. Because none of us are righteous apart from Christ. And I think God is saying when you do blow it, there is forgiveness available. That's why he had the altar built there by Mount Ebal. Because to come to that mount, you are acknowledging your sin, your disobedience. And of course, God has provided a way through the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, whereby all of our sins can be forgiven. And that's what I think he definitely wants to teach all of us through this story, is that none of us are righteous. We'd all love to, before I got saved, I lived in Mount Ebal. Now that I'm saved, I like to think I live most of the time by Mount Gerizim. But I still wander sometimes back to Mount Ebal. So as you're a Christian, you are living now, you know, hopefully more hanging out by Mount Gerizim than Mount Ebal. But there's a lot of folks who don't know the Lord. That's where, they, that's where they live. And they need to know that Jesus Christ loves them and died for them. And no matter how badly their lives are being lived, no matter how sinful, there is forgiveness. If they come to him and repent of their sins and truly want to be forgiven, there is always forgiveness. And I, I just think this, as we just end, I just think that before we go out to battle again, and we're, every week we go out to battle uh, anew, don't we? every Monday we start the battle afresh with the enemy and so on, I just think that God took them away from the battle for just a little time, a little pause, to remind them of some very important things that dealt with their worship of God, their work for God, and their walk with God. Maybe we should take a little time to ponder some of these things ourselves. Where are we at with the Lord? Where are we living? Is our life being lived mostly in obedience or are we being living it mostly in disobedience? And maybe some of the adverse things I'm experiencing in my life, if that's what's going on, some negative things that you're experiencing on a constant level, maybe it's because God is trying to get your attention that something is not right. And he loves you and he's trying to get you to come to him, that you might get it right with him, that he might again begin to bless and lead your life and use you for his glory. It's a good thing to pause every once in a while to find, and to really ask yourself, where am I at with the Lord? Am I playing games or am I being real serious? Am I sincere in my walk with him? May God give you the grace to ask yourself that question honestly. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for this story, for this account, really. We thank you, Lord, that you are so good, so kind, so patient to us. If we will stay close to you and obey all that you have said, Lord, you will bless our lives. You will lead us in the right paths and use us for your glory. But if we wander off, Lord, into sin, we will reap the consequences until we get our lives right with you, which is what you want. So, Lord, help us. Give us grace to each examine our own heart honestly, that we might determine whether or not we're being sincere in our walk or we're playing games, whether we're living in disobedience and making excuses for it or trying to justify it, or whether we are walking in obedience, not that we're perfect, but we really do want to walk with you each day in obedience. And so, Lord, thank you for this little pause in this, this book of Joshua. 
so important that every once in a while we kind of get away from ministry and from everything else and just spend a little time reminding ourselves of how important it is that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of our God. We just thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.